Most of the 30 leadership challenges in this book do not come naturally to me. I've had to learn them the hard way, often through failure, public rebuke, or outright humiliation. This quote is taken straight out of a fantastic book called Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. This quote was chapter 13, or as Scott Miller calls, challenge 13 for a chapter he entitled, Talk Straight, or in other words, Straight Talk. And what he said in this chapter is not every culture values straight talk. His call to action, it's your judgment to understand your latitude. Straight talk can be delivered in respectful ways without ever diminishing someone's reputation. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia, and with me today is the author of this wonderful book, Scott Miller. Scott, welcome to A Climb to the Top. Chuck, thank you, man. My honor. It, great having you here. When I read the book, it was very clever that you put it in three parts. The first part is to lead yourself, that if you expect to lead anybody, this is a good place to start. Second is lead others. Thirty is, third is get results. I'm just a guy like everybody else or gal that was, you know, uh, an individual producer that got promoted into leadership kind of by accident, um, wrecked havoc across the culture until I started to learn what a leader really does, how they think, how they contribute, and uh, made a lot of mistakes along the way, and I found myself on your, your show today. As I read the book, it was very personal because I have read so many leadership books. Yours is among the best I've ever read. Scott serves as Franklin Covey's, in case you don't know, the organization behind the iconic Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He's the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership, and he's a host of something called On Leadership with Scott Miller. It's a weekly leadership webcast, podcast, but also he is a radio host on iHeartRadio, and he produces a newsletter. He is also a leadership columnist for Inc.com. Scott, the first question, why did you write it and who did you write it for? The reason I wrote it was because I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. After 30 years in the leadership industry, as a leader, as an executive officer in a public leadership company. I'm a bit of a pariah. I don't think everyone should be a leader. I think everyone has leadership capability, lead a project, lead an initiative. But I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. Just like not everyone should be an anesthesiologist or a commercial airline pilot, God forbid. I was either of those, never. So I said, if you're going to be a leader of people, then here's 30 challenges that you're going to face. Heck, you're going to face these as a spouse, as a boyfriend, as a parent, as a neighbor. Here's 30 challenges that every leader faces. And here's how I kind of screwed up most of them. Not all of them, because a couple of them I actually had some success around. But I wanted to give a gift to millions of leaders around the world that were either purposeful or accidental. They were lured into leadership in some cases because either they, they wanted to earn more money or they wanted the title or, you know, you choose to be the leader or your nemesis down the hall gets to be your leader, right? So in some cases, you're kind of backed into a corner. I wanted to give a raw, relatable, 
easy read. This is not war and peace, right? I, I wrote this to be a very practical, actionable book. Here are 30 challenges that everyone's going to face. And here's how I faced them in many cases, said, did, or thought the wrong thing. And learn from my mistake so that you can avoid stepping in the pothole that sometimes I was covered to my head on. So that's why I wrote the book and really aimed at really anybody who's looking to be or is in a leadership role. I hope to give some people a gift to say, do this, don't do that. Say this, don't say that. Think this, don't think that way. There is a big distinction between your book and all the others that I've read. I have never read a book that had the word leadership in it that showed the incredible amount of humility, vulnerability. It is rare when I read such a personal account that isn't one of conceit and accomplishment. Yeah. 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 It's one instead of experience is the name I give to my mistakes. I hope you don't make the same mistakes and it very much had to do, as you stated early in the book, with the nature of your personality. What were your personality traits that you discovered, even through high school into college, yeah. that made you Scott Miller? Yeah, it's a, it's a great intro. I, I'm a loud, charismatic person. I'm not a naturally humble person. I'm a hard worker and I like credit for what I've done. I think I'm a generous person. I'm a jealous person. I think that I'm an overly confident person that often gets humbled. You know, I don't have the humility gene in me. Right. I think I have good manners, but I don't really always know the right thing to say or do like most people. I think everybody has a bit of imposter syndrome. I, I'm, I'm a generalist, not a specialist. So when you go to a dinner party, I don't say that, you know, I'm a thoracic surgeon. What am I? I don't know. I'm a writer. I'm a leader. I'm a project manager. I'm a salesperson. I, I'm a lot of things, right? So I had to kind of become comfortable with being a generalist. I thought leadership was being loud, being forceful, being in charge, confronting, solving, fixing, setting the pace. A lot of that's not true. There are a lot of level five leaders that Jim Collins teaches in Good to Great that are shy and retiring, Indeed. quiet. They're demure. about the introverts and the nerds running the world. Yeah, that's right. I thought that leadership was what I saw in politicians, which was usually loud and um, in, in the spotlight on them and taking credit. And I, and I lived that way for most of my 20s and 30s and some of my 40s. And then as I just became, as a late bloomer, a little more mature, a little more literate, a little more thoughtful, surrounded myself with people of enormous talent. I began to better understand the leader's job really is to not be the smartest person in the room. Right. Your job is not to be the genius, but rather the genius maker of others to build, to coach, to be patient, to listen, to validate. I wrote this book because I want leaders to be safe owning their mess. Everybody's got a mess, Chuck. And everybody knows about your mess, your receptionist, your office manager, the president, the stockholders, your employees, everyone knows your mess. So why not just own it, own your mess? Because when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs and talk about it and discuss it. And so I wanted to be a vulnerable author. I'm Catholic, so it was easy for me to confess some of my sins. I didn't want it to be a confessional, but I did want to set a new standard. And thank you for recognizing that, which is, you learn more from your messes than you do your successes, right? I learned immeasurably more 
from leaders that I saw stumble and trip and apologize and regroup than I did people I couldn't relate to that apparently had it all together. Right. The fact of the matter is they probably didn't. They were putting on a good show. I, I wonder, Scott. But the book, it, I think, has done well because of the tone. Well, well, the tone is, is utter honesty and candor. But I want to relate a story in the book that, that blew my mind that I think serves as the entire platform for this book. Scott, in one of his chapters, the chapter was called Declare Your Intent. Mm. Scott narrated the story of a gentleman named Paul Walker. Paul was an up-and-comer, seemed to be a guy with a pretty good reputation. And Paul Walker walked into Scott's office one morning, and with flawless delivery, he, he emitted the coup de grace. He said to Scott, everyone here hates you. And if something doesn't change, we are all going to quit. That's a verbatim quote. Yeah, I have yeah. never seen a leader put that out there. Was that an aha moment or was it something else? Oh, it was piercing. I'll, I'll never forget it. By the way, he and I are still friends. He texted me last night and said, do your boys want to come over and go swimming tomorrow, right? And he's the president of our company now. He has eclipsed me. I was his boss for the better part of a decade, and now he has moved beyond me in the organization. And that's been tough, right? I've had to show some humility and check my own jealousies and also check my pride and, and be proud of my contribution to his success. It's been an emotional roller coaster. But when Paul walked into my office in Chicago, that took some courage because he was not a courageous person at the time. Right. He was actually a little more shy and demure. But he walked in because he cared about me, but he also cared about the colleagues. And he said straight out, everyone here hates you. And if you don't change, we're all going to quit. Right. And we closed the door. And um, I had him review this chapter prior to me publishing it. I don't, I don't think he likes that I published it because we have very different personalities. I had this permission. But it was a major aha moment. And, you know, I, I cried. And he cried. Hmm. And I listened. And he listened. And he told me some of the things that I was doing. And I told him some of the reasons why I had done them, not justifying them. Did you respond out of defensiveness? Saying, probably a little bit, right. probably a little bit. Okay. And the more that I appreciated his intent, right. which was to help me and help him and help others. Right. And we, had, we, had a, we had a culture of trust where he and I could talk straight to each other. At the end of the day, I was his boss, right? So there was some risk. Right. I could have made his life hell, probably had I chosen to, had I been a bad person or um, not saw the wisdom and the opportunity presented to me. Right. And, I, and, I, and I'll tell you, I was probably very defensive. It would be intriguing to hear Paul tell his side of the story. Yeah. But I think that I, I was able to listen to Paul's concern about me and the, thing, the impact that my words and my actions were having on people. Right. I was scared. I was insecure. Ooh. I was an imposter. I was young. Those aren't excuses. Those are facts. Right. And as I began to share with Paul some of the fears that I had and some of the challenges I was facing, it was remarkable how much he said, gosh, I never knew that. Wow, I never knew that was happening. I never knew you were under that pressure. So it was actually helpful for him to leave better understanding how the hot seat that I was in, not, not because that gave me license to be a jerk or license to be 
mean or rude or diminishing. It improved. I'd have a choice. Yeah, well, this is, I, this is an interesting one because you put that story in what was my favorite chapter, and I loved them all. But to clear your intent, you gave a critical management lesson that, that I don't think we teach our children. I don't think we teach in college. We should have an entire course on that. And what you said in this particular chapter is the, the, the biggest truism that I have found in my leadership years. And it, it, you said, and I quote, nearly all, if not all, conflict arises from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. Can you describe the importance of declaring your intent and how the lack of that leads to the conflict? Sure, that, that quote actually should be attributed to Blaine Lee, one of our co-founders, and I hope I did that in the book. It's, it's profound. If you look at the conflict in your life with other people, I'll bet the vast majority of it arises because you did not move outside your comfort zone. You did not confront the undiscussables or talk about what your expectations were for the football tickets, for the tailgating party, for Thanksgiving dinner, for this project, for this collaborative work paper, whatever it was, right? I think your job is to declare your intent because absent facts, people make stuff up. People will, people will ascribe intent to you. People will be suspect of your motives if you don't declare your motives. Indeed. By the way, not all of our motives are pure. We all have hidden agendas, right? All of us have impure motives, right? It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It means you are a person. Right. And the more that you check your intent and then declare your intent, the, the more other people are clear about what your expectations are or what your intentions are. I think it's a great phrase to use in high stakes conversations. Chuck, I've called you in my office today because my intent is to help you build a great career here at Franklin Covey. And there are some behaviors that you're exhibiting that if not fixed, Chuck, may end in your termination. Now, Chuck, you can't think that I have a target on your back I just told you I, my intent is to have you build a great career here. Right. And, and you're immediately setting expectations. You are listening to a Climb to the Top Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia. My guest this evening is Scott Miller. How did you feel through all of this, not just professionally, but what happened at home with your children about the ups and downs you were feeling about this career climb? Was all of this a learning lesson? Expand on how you felt through all of this. I've never been asked that question before. Uh, as I look back at the 20, almost now 25 years of Franklin Covey, uh, the majority of my success is because of particular leaders that believed in me more than I believed in myself. And they forgave me. They pre-forgave me. Right, that's in the they book. Yep, they set me up for situations that stretched my skills without sinking me. And my whole career has been sort of two steps forward, one step back. Right. And I think that's relatable for a lot of people. And so for me, I don't, I don't, I have very few regrets. Should I have said some things differently? Of course. Should I have treated people differently? Of course. I think a lot of people would write a book about all my successes. I won't write that book, but I've had some great successes along the way. Again, I think you learn more from the messes, but I'm quite comfortable with the jagged ascent 
that I have been able to journey and bring some people along with me and have some people surpass me. Right. And as I mature into what I write about and teach others, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at great humility and peace around the, the, the rocky nature of my journey. And I think how relatable it can be for other people. I've been very blessed. I've worked very hard. I have, uh, I have outworked a lot of my colleagues. And as I now am in my 50s and writing and speaking and coaching, I think that my journey is very relatable to a large portion of the audience of people who aren't naturally leaders. Right. right. They are productive. They're efficient. They're hardworking. But they're challenged on developing relationships, understanding how to build a reputation of trustworthiness, understand the brand that they're building by accident or by intention. Right. And so for me, I, I, I'm, I'm privileged to take a lot of these lessons that I've learned being around some of the biggest, best minds in the business and uh, give back to other people along the way. That's that, that's my legacy. Yet the premise of your book is, and you, you write in the first page, they didn't come naturally to me. No. They no. were learned and developed. Yes. I, I want it particularly to my Columbia students. Many of them come into this program called Professional Development and Leadership. And, and, and many of them come in with the mindset, uh, that's not the way I was thinking about myself. I'm an engineer or whatever yeah. I am. Yeah. That's what I set out to do. It, are, are you living proof then that these can be taught as long as you're open to it. Amen. Absolutely. I mean, I was raised in an upper middle class family. We went to college. We were, went to Cotillion. I mean, we were, you know, a sufficiently um, sophisticated family, but I didn't know how to work in corporate America. I, I didn't understand the protocol. I was a bit of a bull in a china shop. I said what was on my mind. Right. Um, so I had to learn a lot the hard way. And you know, I tell you, the biggest learning was this idea of being efficient versus being effective. I was a very efficient-minded person. A machine. Machine. Right. Uh, much of my success in life has been my productivity, my efficiency. Right. And my biggest problem in life, in business, Chuck, has been trying to use that efficiency mindset right. with relationships. You can't be efficient with people. You have to be effective. Right. And those are different whole belief systems. So I've had to figure out, how do you have a corporate dinner? When do you ask for the sale? How to slow down? I'm a fairly anxious person as it is. Not necessarily anxiety, but I, I, you know, I tend to like to move things along and do things faster. So my biggest learning has been how to make sure that my efficiency mindset when it comes to cleaning out the garage or sending texts or social media isn't transferred over into meetings and client dinners and building culture on my team. There's a time to be efficient, right. a time to be effective. Neither are bad or good. They're both necessary, just in different settings. Well, what you're talking about is the human spirit. What we know about being humans is we think we, we, we feel first. Yes. We think second. Yeah. And what you're describing, what you learned along the way, and it's very much, I know you started your career at Disney and some of the Rocky Road, but the Disney, for all the times I've taken my kids to the parks, there's, there, there's a prevailing theme. When you walk into Disney, Maya Angelou is in my head. And Maya Angelou said, people will forget what you said, they will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you make them feel. And when you walk into the Disney park, it's all smiles and hugs and everybody's feeling great. 
you seem to not naturally had that because the machine in you prevailed, it predominated. You have learned, and how did you do it to learn that it's how you make them feel? How hard was that on you? Maybe harder than I realized. My brother is an engineer, MBA from MIT. He's more of the left-brained of the two of us, just the two of us in the family. I'm more right-brained. I'm more of a feeler. But I think you're right. I think I, I, I had to make a lot of mistakes. I had to have a lot of coaches sit me down and say, Scott, that hurt their feelings. Or Scott, that was really rude. Or Scott, you're, you're, you're too impulsive or too impetuous. I'll tell you, it was Seth Godin who's a dear friend of mine, of course, the author and publisher and speaker. Yeah. It was Seth who's taught me the difference between being reckless and being fearless. Right. And this is profound. I spent too many decades thinking I was being fearless right. when in fact I was being reckless. And now I'm much more deliberate around differentiating. I don't want to be reckless with anything or anyone but I do want to be more fearless. So I ask myself, is that reckless or is it fearless? And oftentimes, if I'm saying something that diminishes someone or hurts their feelings or is rude or is insulting, which comes out of my mouth more often than it should, yeah. I realize I'm being reckless. That's not being fearless because not everything I think should be said. I thought that leaders said what was on their mind. They were loud, like I mentioned before, and they made everybody aware of their every thought. Right. That's not true. That's called cowardice. Right. It takes some deliberation and some calibration to manage your emotions and to determine, should I think this or should I say this? I think a lot of what gets people in trouble in leadership roles is that they don't calibrate and manage their emotions, Indeed. their responses, their reactions, and they feel compelled to say what's on their mind. No, you probably ought to say about 10% of what's on your mind. 90% of my problems in corporate America have been because I said something that should have remained a thought. Well, part of what we learn about leadership, what I hope that I can teach is that power is not just in the exercise of it, it's in the restraint of it. Mm, it's, well what Kennedy, it's what Kennedy taught us yeah. in the Bay of Pigs. He didn't yeah. have, to, have to pull the trigger. He had to lay back and work his way, exercise the power of restraint. So true. Indeed, Scott, in, um, there, there is one thing I want to get to in our time remaining, actually two things. One is you talk about the importance right at the end of the book in the balance of the value of competence and the value of character. Why did you finish with that? And I loved it, but explain that conclusion. Well, character is your ticket to the game. I mean, I, I, I have hired hundreds of people and I've had the unfortunate responsibility of terminating dozens of people. Right. I hardly ever have to terminate someone on low competence. Right. It's almost always on a deficiency or a slip up of character. Right. Character is telling the truth, taking responsibility for your actions, not cutting corners, not cheating, being transparent, coming in with your cards face up, admitting when you made a mistake, not just getting caught, but surfacing it beforehand and saying, I did this, I was wrong, can you help me fix it? So, you know, character is built in a lifetime and destroyed in a decision. Character is what you do, not just when people are watching, what people are not watching. Um, well, it's defined by what you're doing when no one is looking. It's very true. 
Yeah. So your reputation is basically the collection of all of your decisions in life mm -hmm. and everybody should manage their reputation with extraordinary care. I want to leave. Unfortunately, this, this flew by. We only have two minutes, but you, you embedded an incredible call to action. And what you talked about is I passionately encourage you to be fearless about your own professional development. Yes. Quantum leaps, but I want you to yes. fill in the blank here. You posed the question, what is the standard old school advice? Well, listen to podcasts, attend industry conferences, read academics, or watch TED Talk, blah, 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 blah. You throw all of that out. Scott, leave our listeners with what you advise to be their call to action in one minute and 20 seconds. Yeah. Do what I did. Go get your own damn podcast. Go write your own damn LinkedIn article. Go organize your own damn conference. Write your own article in a magazine. Go get your own radio program, right? All of these are accomplishable. You need like $2 and a microphone to launch your own podcast, right? You need no dollars to start writing blogs on LinkedIn. I think there's great value. I mean, I read 100 books a year. I subscribe to 42 magazines. I don't say throw that out. But I think you should radically disrupt your learning process is – Instead of just consuming it all, give back and, and, and disrupt yourself. Move outside your comfort zone. Move way outside your comfort zone. Chuck, I'm a stutterer. I mean, I am a bona fide stutterer. <laughs> and I went out and got a radio program on iHeartRadio. And I just started moving through my own comfort zone. And I think it's working. Instead of reading everybody else's leadership book, I wrote my own leadership book. Well, it was, uh, it was and I've written many more was, that are coming out in the, in the coming. So it was Seth Godin who says the book that will change your life is the book that you write. And you wrote that book. Can I tell you, I actually sent Seth, I sent Seth a text a few months ago when my second book came out, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager. And I said, Seth, it hit the Wall Street Journalist, number three. He wrote back, great, keep writing. <laughs> I mean, he was like, he gave me one second of um, combination. It's like, write some more, right? Like, you know, I love Seth. I love Seth, period. He's such a fine human being. But disrupt yourself. Everything that you're consuming, keep consuming it. But turn it back around. Produce your own conference, produce your own webinar, produce whatever it is you want. Have a conference call, right? Put yourself out there, try new things, let the feedback roll off you, absorb what's good, leave what's bad, and completely disrupt yourself before someone else disrupts you. And I, I wanna leave our listeners with Scott, as I was reading your book, I, I kept making references to some of the leaders that I admire. And what continually came into my head is the following, and it's by the late, great Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face yeah. is marred by dust and sweat and blood. Now, there's a lot more to this quote, but Scott, you are the man in the arena. And I thank you for coming onto the show. I thank you for writing what is, will be at least for me, one of my favorite leadership books that I will make required reading with my graduate students. And thank you so much for your honesty, your candor. You put it all out there and, and we are grateful for that. Thank you, Scott, for all that you have done so far. Chuck, I appreciate your support. Thank you for the platform today.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.